right. Well, once again, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk about an important uh, subject, important place. We're going to talk about heaven. Yeah, right? No doubt an awesome subject. It's a place we've all heard about, dreamt about, and uh, we all hope to get there one day. Now, I will do my best to describe heaven with the small amount of information that's in the Bible, uh, but I want to start out with a little uh, public announcement. Rest assured, no matter what I say today, I will fail miserably to describe heaven to you. Uh, the Bible provides some information, but there is no language, there's no words we developed by humans that are going to adequately describe heaven in all its beauty. So with that upfront admission, uh, we're going to jump in, we're going to try to provide as accurate information as we can. Um, now this week also, when I was thinking about how to start this, what, how, do you, how do you approach a subject, heaven? How do you, how do you put your foot in the door, right? Because it's such a huge thing. There's a lot of different ways I could have done that. But I think I want to start with something that Jesus said, um, when he, what he said to the criminal on the cross next to him as they were dying. And just for a little background, when Jesus was crucified, there was a criminal on each side of them, uh, on, on side of him. And they, as they were dying, one of the criminals said something to Jesus, and then Jesus responded. And it's really kind of cool how it opens the door and gives us some information. So that's at Luke 23, uh, verses 42 to 43. Uh, and this is what it says. Then he said, this is the criminal talking, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So even though this is really short, it still gives us some important information. And first off, the criminal, he says, when? When you come into your kingdom. What this means is that the criminal, he didn't know how long it was going to take. It was going to be that day, that after minutes, hours, weeks, months, Whenever, Jesus, you get to your kingdom, whenever that is, remember me. It was simply an open-ended statement. And Jesus, the way he responded is perfect in a lot of ways. And he says, well, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, for our purposes, his answer indicates the time that's going to take to get there is extremely short, probably instantaneous, because he just said that it's going to be today. So no matter how far heaven appears to us, how far away, distant, whatever, and hard to wrap our minds around, through Jesus Christ, it's pretty much instantaneous. There's, there's no wait. And Jesus uses this word paradise to describe this place. Now, a little background on the word paradise. Paradise is actually a Persian word, and it refers to a beautifully well-kept walled-in garden. So a long, long time ago, people would intentionally make basically their own little garden paradise with the streams and trees and all kind of stuff. And it was well-maintained, very intentional, beautiful. And that's what it was supposed to be. And that's the origin of the word paradise. And that's the word that Jesus used to describe this place. And that, that, that word is actually very similar to the word that was used to describe the Garden of Eden in the Old Testament. They carry the same connotation, the same meaning, meaning this place is intentionally created. It's intentionally beautiful, intentionally bountiful. It's very, very special, unlike anything else. Now, to be fair also, there's no way that one word paradise adequately describes heaven in all its glory. It just doesn't. And I feel very comfortable in saying when Jesus said paradise, he wasn't trying to give us a multi-layered, deep-level theory, you know, a book on what heaven actually is. It was one word short, but still it was very beautiful. And he was saying, this is where we are going to be today. 
So now having partially opened that door to heaven, let's go a little further into some other stuff that Jesus said. But now, also, if you, in your own, if you want to do an exhaustive review of everything in the Bible, Old New Testament, that talks about heaven, you're going to see that Jesus talked almost exclusively about how to get there, rather than what's it going to look like? What kind of color palettes? Is it going to be a three-four car garage? Really, really good Wi-Fi, like no dead spots anywhere. He doesn't go into that detail, right? It just wasn't important. But let's look to John 14, because he does also give a little bit of more information. John 14, verses 2 to 4. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, that's okay. All the verses are going to be on the screen above my head. So John, verse, uh, four, John chapter 14, verse, starting off verse 2. He said, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I will take you so that you may be also where I am. And he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. So he says, this place has many, many rooms. Now the word room actually can probably be better translated as dwelling place or home. In English, the word room means something very specific, right? We all have rooms in our house. Bedroom, bathroom, that kind of stuff, you know, 8 by 12, whatever. It means something very specific. So in all likelihood, Jesus meant dwelling place, home, rather than a single room. Some versions of the Bible, maybe even your Bible, may use the word mansion, and that's probably okay too. Um, but I, I kind of shy away from the word mansion because, again, in English, it means something very specific, something opulent. And we start saying, well, I get my own mansion. We have our own ideas. Well, I better have a heated pool. It's got to have a four-car garage. And you know, we have all those other stuff that we think needs to be there to mac, you know, for a mansion. When really what it is is God created a beautiful place for us. Whatever it is, however it big is and all that kind of stuff, it's going to be amazing and way more than we deserve, right? Amen. Now, what I also think is cool, because Jesus also said that he's going there to prepare this place for us. He's going there to do work for us. Now, which indicates, or doesn't indicate necessarily, because some think, okay, is he going to go re- rehab the place? Like, does it have like a 1980s kitchen with lots of formica and he's going to put in, you know, granite countertops? No, not necessarily. What I think is, what I really think this is about is he's going there to intentionally spend time making his mark on our eternal home for us. He's doing this out of love. This is beautiful what he's doing. He's intentionally being involved in this because it shows that he has a lot of love and care for us. And I think that's just wonderful. Now, now we have a little bit of general information. Let's go into a little more detail. And to do that, we're going to need to switch to the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, go to Revelation 21. We're going to go into chapters 21 and 22. Now in this book, in the book of Revelation, John gets a very detailed view of heaven. He gets a a view and he gets to see a lot of different things. And one of the things that he sees is this new city that's going to come down out of heaven at, at the end. It's called New Jerusalem. It's God's holy city. So after all things are complete, the tribulation... Uh, the rapture, all that stuff, after devil and his angels are cast into hell, this great city will come down out of heaven. It's in uh, Revelation 21, and this is where we actually get some descriptions of it. Starting at verse 12. John says, It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So this new Jerusalem is going to have walls, it'll have gates. The gates will contain the 12 
contain the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the walls itself, the foundations, will have the names of the disciples, the 12 disciples on them. Let's continue to verse 15 and 17. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. And then the angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 140 cubits thick. Now, we actually, we know how long a stadia is. A stadia is about an eighth of a mile. And we know what a cubit is. A cubit is about 18 inches. So with that information, we can actually get a pretty good idea of how big this great city is going to be. And now I did some, before I started doing my own calculations, I looked online and see if anybody already did it for me, and they did. There's a person who actually had a construction paper, made a cube of that size and placed it on the globe. So we'd have an idea of how big New Jerusalem would be. And that's what it is. Now, just, uh, uh, just so we're all on the same page, we are not saying New Jerusalem is going to be America. I don't want to, you know, throw it in a... You always want to make sure that's very clear. This is God's city. But it's only on the American continent because we have a pretty good idea of that. If we put it over Asia, we don't have you know, good a reference. Um, but it's roughly the size of Florida domain. Florida domain. It's also as high and wide as it is long. It doesn't cover the entire, as far as size, the United States, but it is very close. In, uh, in chapter 18 to 21, it says, The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every, uh, every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, uh, the third, oh, I said agate, and that's not how you pronounce it. How do you pronounce it? Agate, thank you. Agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. Amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. So the, <laughs> the entire city was made of gold and precious stones. Now here's what's interesting, is John is seeing all this. He's looking out over the city, he's just seeing this fabulous, just incredible, beyond description. He's, he noticed something isn't there. Something, I don't know if I use the word missing, but just something's not there. And this is what he says. It's in verses 22 to 23. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of the God gives its light and the lamp, the Lamb is its lamp. Now this is just awesome. But we need some perspective here. Why we don't have this, why we don't see this now. Here on earth, we cannot be in God's presence because of our sin. And because of that, God created a way for us to get back to him. First, he made the law, the temple. He sent the prophets, the disciples. We have the Bible. He also sent Jesus Christ. But even with Jesus on this earth, we did not see him in his full glory. We do not see God face to face. And even though on this earth, we have some pretty impressive temples, cathedrals, right? We see some pretty massive, beautiful things that we've created. They're only places of worship. They do not physically represent God's glory. They do not represent heaven. They don't get anywhere close to the glory or the awesomeness that we're going to see in God's holy city. And what John tells us there is that once in heaven, there will be no churches. There will be no need for a church building like we have now. There will be no synagogue, no temples. 
God the Father him, himself and the Son are the temple. And because we'll finally be able to see them in all their glory, there will be no need for a sun or a moon. They will provide all the light we will ever need. Let's jump into chapter 22. Let's read just a little bit more. Uh, Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Now this is a really cool image, but there's also uh, some big meaning behind it. First of all, we know that all life depends on water, all of it. Without water, there would be no life on this earth. And in this vision, John, he doesn't see a pond, he doesn't see a great lake or a waterfall. He sees rather a river of life, crystal clear, just flowing continually from the throne of God. In the Garden of Eden, think about it, God actually took dirt and he made man. He breathed life into dirt. That's how everything started. But now in this, this in heaven, it's about an eternal, abundant, joyful existence with God. And here everything flows from God in the form of a river of life. And it's, it shows that it's outward, it's continual, it never stops. There's always going to be an abundance of crystal clear, beautiful, life-giving water directly from the throne. Now let's jump into uh, verse 2. It says, down the middle of the street, it's talking about the river, this great river of life, is going to flow down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So the river flows down the great street, right down the middle, right? And there'll be this huge tree of life, and it's wider at the base than the river is. So it's going to be wider down low. So you have the river going down the tree. And what's interesting, in the, in the, in the book of Genesis, um, in the Garden of Eden, we also have a tree. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was also in the center of the garden. But if you remember, Adam and Eve were forbidden from touching it or even eating from it. Right? So in this case, it was completely different. But now in heaven, everything is complete. All sins are washed away. The world is perfect. And now there's this new tree. And the, only, and the one thing that flows from it is life-giving water continually. And once a month, this tree is actually going to produce fruit. Now, this actually means two things. One, we will eat in heaven. And there will also be some, some, some sense of time. But let's go a little further into both of those. When we eat, we'll likely not get hungry the way we do now and need food. There will be food, but likely when we eat, it'll be celebrational. It'll be about God's bounty. It'll be joyous. It'll just be one big, like a celebration, essentially. And this tree will produce fruit, so we'll have a sense of time because it's going to produce fruit once a month. Right? Now, what's interesting about it is we will not experience time the way we do now. Here on earth, we grow old. We get a little gray. We get a little arthritis. Some of us, our forehead keeps getting bigger every year, right? Also, this tree will produce leaves, and they will be for the healing of the nations. So it tells us all nations will be there. It won't be just one nation, but all nations. Now, the other important thing that we need to talk about regarding heaven is it's a place of no mores. What this means is because everything is now complete. There's no more sin. We'll be in God's presence we will not experience pain and suffering the way we do now. There won't be any of that. And there's two verses I want to talk about that really go into that. Revelation 21, verse 4, and then uh, Revelation 22, 3. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order has passed away. And that old order jumps, leads right into verse uh, 3 from chapter 22. No longer will there be any curse. 
Well, these are important. So the first thing I want to talk about is this curse. What is this curse? What, what's this about? What, where did it come from? What does it have to do with? Well, to answer that question, we have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. When they, when they disobeyed God and they ate fruit from the tree that they weren't supposed to, they introduced sin into the world. And it obviously came with huge repercussions for them, but also for us. And so then this is what brought about this curse. This is when God brings this curse. This is in, it's in Genesis three sixteen to 19. He said, To the woman, I will make your, ch- your pains in childbearing very severe, and, and with painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, I said, you must not eat from it. Cursed now is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So this curse, it involves pain in childbirth. The ground is now cursed, and if anyone's ever worked outside and tried to grow stuff, it is not easy. Thorns, thistles, poison ivy, yay, right? But notice where the real curse here. The real curse is death. Notice that when God made us from the dust of the ground, that's where we came from. He says our destiny is to return to the dust. But here's also what's interesting. If you read when God created man, he did not say at that time, hey, I made you from the dust, you're going to return to the dust. He only said that after we were cursed, after the sin. So it kind of begs the question, what did God actually have planned for us? What was the long-term plan? What was his desire? Well, for one, it was not for us, it was for us to not disobey him. God wanted to have an eternal relationship with us. He didn't want the separation that sin brought. We brought that on ourselves, and we still do today. But as long as sin remained in the world, we would be cursed. We would be separate from God. But there's a good ending to this story. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, right before he died, he said the words, it is finished. And what he meant was he paid the debt for that curse. He took on all that blame. He became that curse for us so we didn't have to. And then when he died... On the cross, it actually, the Bible tells us the temple curtain split in two, and the temple curtain was huge, it was thick, and it separated the, the entire temple from the Holy of Holies, the most holy area. And when he died, that curtain split in two, so now there was no more separation between God and us because the debt was paid, that curse was no more. And now in heaven, this view that we get, because all things are complete, sin is washed away, the devil and his angels are in hell, we're now in God's presence. There is no more curse. That's all gone. Not just then, but ever again. This is the age of no mores. No more curse, no more death, no dying, no more sorrow, no more separation, no more sickness. Revelation 22.5, I love this. It even says, and by the way, there will be no more night. They will not need the, lamp of, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So in addition to darkness itself being gone, with all other sorrows, the only the light that we will experience will come from God himself, and that's just beautiful. But here's where things also even start to get more awesome. In this life, we know what it is to feel pain, right? to be sorrow, to have sorrow, to have depression, to not be happy have worry and guilt. We also know what it's like to feel alone, truly alone. 
We know what it's like to not know what we should do next. Shake your heads if you can agree, if you've been this, felt this way, even in your, in, your, in your adult life. You don't know if you should go forward or backward or right or left, or do I just stay here? No, wait, if I stay here, how long do I stay here? Should I have already left? Should I turn? What would I do? Anybody else felt like that before? In heaven, everything will be different. Here on earth, we do not get to see God face to face or experience him in all his glory, but in heaven we will. In heaven, it tells us we will see his face. We will be face to face with him. We will experience his overwhelming glory, and we will feel it in the full. Now, there's a verse that we need to read. It's beautiful. It's very, very short, but it means a lot more than we think. Revelation 22.4. They will see his face, and his name will be on, his, on their foreheads. So this is cool, and it means far more than when you first read it. It doesn't really hit you. When we see someone's face, even today, if you look around the room... You can see their eyes, their mouth. You can see if they have wrinkles, they have gray hair. It tells you a lot about the person. It also tells you about their mood. For example, if I showed you a series of pictures, I bet everybody here could tell if someone was angry, right? You could tell if someone was happy or sad or if they're just kind of bleh, right? But what if I also showed you a picture of a mother holding her newborn infant? You could see the love in their eyes. You could see when a husband looks at his wife how they love them. You see the wife loves the husband. You could go to a funeral and you can see people feel extreme sadness, but they love the person who's passed away. The same is true with God. When we finally get to see his face, we won't just see his face, we'll see his emotion too. You will see the love, the joy in his eyes when his lost children are home, like home. You will see that. There's a reason, there's a good, really good story, the story of the prodigal son, and there's a lot of good lessons in that. But one of them is, the re, one of the reasons Jesus told us is because it tells us a lot about how the father sees his lost children. Today, we want to focus just on the part of the father and the son returning. So in Luke 15, verse 20, it says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son, his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. Now, this is what I want you to do. Anytime you read a parable in a story, something that Jesus said, put yourself literally in that story. Imagine you're there, and you saw this unfold. You saw a father, his anguish, if any of you unfortunately ever experienced this, where your child has gone away, you don't know what's happened to them. He is scared, horrified, he's lost his son. And then in the distance, he sees his child returning home. Home. What would you see on his face? It would be joy. It would be wonder. It would just be, it would be hard to describe, right, with human language. Now, go further. Imagine what his face looked like when his son was right in front of him. When he held his son again. He was home. And if you're a parent, you know this. You know what your child smells like. This is the sense of smell of their hair. You know what they, you know what they feel like. Imagine the joy in his face when that happened. This is the joy that we will see on our Father's face when we are home. When we are truly home. This is a big deal. That's why it talks about when we will see his face. But not also to put this into perspective, Paul talked about this, but in doing so, he also made some important distinctions that we need to understand. While on this earth, we don't see things totally as they are. No matter how great a picture we get in our mind and try to imagine things, we will never be able to understand until we actually get there. 
And Paul describes this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. This is what he says. For now we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now it's only in part. Then I shall know fully. So any effort we make to picture God's face and all that stuff we went through, and it's awesome, it's only as in seeing through a mirror. We don't fully understand. We will never get the true message till we're there. And let's be honest, sin is the reason for that. Sin not only puts a physical barrier between God and us, but it also limits what we can actually see. Sin is everywhere. The world is clouded by sin. And here's how you'll know this. Everyone here has seen a rainbow, right? Yeah. Everyone's seen a, a sunset, like a beautiful sunset, and they are awesome. I can guarantee you when you see a sunset in heaven, it will be far different. Far different. Same thing with the rainbow. Nothing is going to compare to what we will see then. When we will finally be in our Father's presence. When there will be no more sin. And that is amazing. But now here's we come to the part of the teaching where we need to talk about why we're talking about this. Why is this stuff even in the Bible? Why did last week Pastor Joey talk about hell? Why am I talking about heaven this morning? Well, first off, the reason we're talking about it is because Jesus Christ talked about it. And whatever he talked about, we need to understand, we need to listen. But Jesus also talked about how you get to heaven, how you get to hell. What behaviors, what lifestyle, what beliefs lead you to one place or the other? And he was very clear. And the reason all this matters is because each one of us will go one place or the other at some point. We will. The Bible tells us that God created each one of us for a purpose. He knows us. He knows the number of hairs on our head. But it was us humans that decided to sin. It's us humans that still decide to sin, to turn our backs on God. But God is patient, he's loving, he's kind, and he's created a way for us to return to him. And a way that we can know where we will spend eternity. And it's in a place that we've talked about. There's no pain. There's no suffering. We don't grow old. You don't have to say goodbye to loved ones. And heck, in this place, there's no sun or moon. This is a place of all joy, all hope, and love. So today, if there's anyone here who has doubts about where you will go, there is a way to help you. In a minute, we're going to pray. And when we do, all you have to do is repeat the words that I say. Because getting to heaven is about faith in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with a church or a denomination. This church does not like, have the copyright for heaven. It's about Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with your bank account, your political beliefs. It's about Jesus Christ. Amen? And in this church, that is our sole goal, is to spread the good news about Jesus Christ. So again, when we pray, you can, all you have to do is say the words that I say. You can say them quietly to yourself. Whatever you say is between you and God. There's no test. No one's going to ask you. But we want to give everybody that opportunity unquestionably to know. Okay? But also in that prayer, we're going to pray for each one of us to grow in our faith, to be used by God to step out so other people can know the good news too. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you raised him from the dead. Today, I ask Jesus to come into my life. I ask him to make me new. I ask him to put his mark on me. I ask him to forgive me and to save me and to bring me to my eternal home. 
And Father, today, as a church and as individuals, we pray for strength to endure all trials. May everything we go through, both good and bad, may it strengthen our faith and our resolve, and may we always lean on you. Father, today we also recommit ourselves to you. Many times in life we get pulled away, we fall out of sync with you, but today we make the choice to recommit to you. It's our choice, and we choose you. Father, we also pray for all people to come to know you and to place their trust in you. It's only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we have hope and that we are saved. Father, we pray that as our faith grows, individually and as a church, that you will use us as you see fit. Use us to expand your kingdom and to spread the good news of your Son. Father, we thank you for the life you've given each one of us. We thank you for the church, but most of all, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we ask all these things. Amen.